Greetings of love. In the name of Jesus this morning. Glad to be here with you. Glad to be part of the service so far and the uh, many inspiring thoughts in relation to what God wants of us in our lives and be sure that we do not ourselves fall into the snare of of unbelief. I'd like to just say thanks to the everyone that was involved last night, especially those who uh, took the time and effort to make preparation for that Father's Day supper. It was much appreciated and it was very good and God bless you for that extra effort for us. Appreciate that. Today is known as Father's Day and I suppose there's probably a lot of thoughts go through our minds when we think of that. My father is gone some years already. We have his memories. And I had to think about, um, I thought about it earlier this morning, two of my sons uh, wish me Father's Day, Happy Father's Day, which I appreciate that. And I think about it in church life, I think about it in family life. I thought of that scripture, familiar scripture in Third John, I think it's verse 4 there, where he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. We often wish our fathers a happy Father's Day, which I think is nice, it's good. But then I had to think about what really makes a happy Father's Day. As a Christian, as a Christian father, it is to have that blessing of knowing that your children are walking in truth. I just like to say that to all of us here this morning, if you have a godly father that cares about you spiritually, the greatest thanks you can give to him, the greatest way you can bless his heart on Father's Day is to do and to walk in the truth that he has taught you. It's been said, and you've heard this before, I think it was said actually maybe back on Father or Mother's Day. We praise the mothers on Mother's Day and we scold the fathers on Father's Day. And I, I had preached a message last Sunday in relation to sort of fathers. I told Eldon, I said, I apologize. I didn't mean to take a Father's Day message away from him. But then with um, the arrival of their baby this week, he came back and asked me to take his place and... and uh, Today, which I gladly did, but I thought about this. I don't plan to scold the fathers Father's Day today. I, uh, I'm saying that we don't probably need a scolding sometimes, but uh, face our responsibilities. But I would like to um, just think more of something positive and encouragement to fathers this morning, and something that was encouragement to me as I looked into this. And I'd like to look at the life of Abraham. Uh, there's something about Abraham that is very, well, a lot of things, very interesting. He's a very interesting figure in the scriptures. And I think he has a lot of encouragement for us and inspiration and, and challenge as well. I would like to begin by, um, I guess you could call this a text verse, uh, James 2 and verse 23. James 2 and verse tw- 23 I'd like to begin with this scripture. 
And I've entitled the message, Abraham, the friend of God. James 2 and verse 23. It's in the middle of talking about faith and works. But verse 23 says, And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him, or accounted unto him, for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. And so this morning we think about Abraham, the, the friend of God. And in thinking of this, you know, the question could be raised, what, what was about the life of Abraham, or what was about the life of, or the relationship between him and God, that um, Abraham was called the friend of God. And this was not so much from Abraham's perspective as it was from God's perspective. In a sense, God was saying, Abraham is my friend. We have a lot of understandings and visions, and as we think about God and the greatness of God and and, and all of that, but this, this morning, do you understand God Almighty, the creator of all the earth, as your friend? And would he count you as a friend? Would he say you're his friend? That's what it is said of Abraham. Now, it's interesting that there are three other places in the scripture where Abraham is referred to as the friend of God. I'll just refer to these. Jehoshaphat's prayer in Second Chronicles 20 and verse 7. Art not thou our God, who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and gavest it to the seed of Abraham, thy friend forever? So Jehoshaphat in his prayer referred to the Abraham, the children of Abraham, and Abraham as thy friend forever. Isaiah 41 and verse 8. But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. That's God speaking through the prophet. Abraham, my friend. Now, I'm thinking of Abraham as the friend of God. Just one more thought before we take this further into the practical side. He was human, as we well know the story of Abraham. He was human and made some mistakes, as we do. But in all of that, in his penitence, his desire to serve God in faithfulness and truth, humbly seeking God in the way of God each step of the way, when he erred, made a mistake, he failed, he came back to God. We're going to notice a little bit of that. And in spite of all of that, God says, he's my friend. Now, what do you think it means to be a friend of God? What does it mean to be a friend of God? I'd like to just look at now some of the different scriptures that refer to not only, not so much Abraham as a friend of God, that's all part of this, but just some characteristics of the life of Abraham as we think about some inspiration for us as fathers this morning we need to remember that we serve the same God that Abraham did. So time we think about those patriarchs of old and you know their relationship with God and, and all, all of those things that happened and how God blessed them and, and how they worship God. And, and we think that's just a, a situation far removed from us. 
but it doesn't need to be, and it shouldn't be. We serve the same God that Abraham did. We have more knowledge of the workings of God in in history than what Abraham did. Now, there were some intimate things that Abraham knew about some situations that I would maybe feel a little jealous of. Do you know that he overlapped with Shem, the son of Noah, by 150 years? In fact, Isaac, Abraham's son, overlapped with Shem, I think about 40 or 50 years. So Abraham could have talked to Shem, which would have told him the stories of how the earth was before the flood. He could have told him what it was like to ride in the ark, weather all those storms. Interesting. So there was that connection. We understand that. But we also have all the stories of the Old Testament. We have the story of Abraham that is written down for us, and plus the stories of so many other of the patriarchs. And so this morning we have a very good opportunity to know a lot about the God of Abraham. I'd like to go now to Genesis 12. We're going to spend quite a bit of time in Genesis this morning. Of course, that's where the story of Abraham mostly is, as well as referred to some in other places, especially in the New Testament. All right, so Genesis 12 and verse 1. I'd like to think a little bit about Uh, Abraham as a leader in his home. Abraham as a leader in his home. He is outstanding. He is an example in many ways. Genesis 12 and verse 1, we have this uh, written for us. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, and just so clarification, I'm going to use mostly Abraham, even though his name first was Abram, just for simplicity's sake. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was seventy was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. Now, you think about leadership in relation to Abraham, the friend of God. And, and so here God called him and said, I want you to leave the comforts of, of your of your home country. You know, and I'm going to lead you somewhere. I'm going to lead you to a land where you will be blessed, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your uh, family great, a great nation of thee, and um, thy name is going to be great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And through him, through Abraham, all families of the earth were going to be blessed, which of course is alluding to the coming of Christ into the world and blessing everyone uh, through that, and which means that as a Christian today, we are also the spiritual children of Abraham. But not only notice in verse 4, it simply says, so Abraham departed. God said, start moving, I'll tell you which direction to go, and I'll, I'll tell you when you get there. And in a sense, step by step, you with me like to know our lives being mapped out and understand We don't just pack up and start moving and driving and not know where we're going. 
But this really was what God asked of Abraham. And we have in Hebrews 11, verse 8, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. So he packed up, got on the trail, the road, and started moving. And God said, I'll tell you which direction, where you're going to stop as you go. But it says it was by faith. Now, you think about this today. And think about Abraham's example of spiritual leadership in his home. And we maybe are not called to just pack up and start moving, start starting to drive somewhere without knowing where we're going. That's not necessarily the part of the application for us, although maybe at times it could be. I'm not saying it would never be, but I'm just saying that that's probably not what it means for us today. But what it means for us today is that as, as a leader in our homes, as, as, as faithful Abraham, we also need to spiritually be able to step out and make those tough decisions that need to be made to follow by faith what God has for us. You know, and you think of this in relation to sometimes moving to a location or becoming part of a church fellowship and and all the questions that can be asked about this. But we have a responsibility to our families as spiritual leaders to step out and follow the path, the plan of God as he outlines it to us. Are we at times filled with trepidation? Are we at times filled with questions? Yes, but we have a faith in God that's going to move us forward in the path that God, God has for us. Secondly, we see it in verse 7. Um, here of the same uh, same chapter, chapter 12, verse 7, The Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west, and Ai on the, on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord, and called upon the name of the Lord. One of the things in relation to the spiritual leadership that Abram had to with his family was, he was a man who built altars. And I, I didn't look this up, but he was probably one of the patriarchs that's recorded that built the most altars. No, the, the, all the patriarchs built altars. It was, a, it was worship. It was sacrifice. It was their, their dedication of worship to their God. And here, they got to Bethel. One side of Bethel there, Bethel was on the east. So he would have been on the west side. So he, he, uh, he pitched his tent there. He set up camp. And the first thing he did was he built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. We have a responsibility as fathers, like Abraham, in our worship of God. And I think part of being that friend of God was that he had a close worship relationship with his God. And where he usually where he pitched his tent, set up camp, he built an altar. That's a, a challenge for us, you know, as fathers today, with our the responsibility for our families, we are the spiritual leaders. We are the ones who lead them to Christ in worship and in praise. You know, not just in yes, we come to church and services and and all of those things, but you know, in family worship and and even throughout the week, you know, there should be a spiritual uh, atmosphere and relationship that when things arise, things come up, 
Many times in the everyday things of life, we can our families are pointed toward God and toward faith in God. It is a responsibility we have, and Abraham took that took that serious. This was close beside Bethel there, which if you if you want an interesting Bible study, take the the area or the city of Bethel and what all that means throughout the scriptures. It's, it's, there's just a lot of meaning there. A lot of different happenings relate to Bethel. And this is where we, I think we first hear about it. And now if you drop down to verse 10, something changed. We have verse 9, Abraham journeyed then, going on still toward the south. And there was a famine in the land. And Abraham went down into Egypt to sojourn, sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. Now, it doesn't appear, in Scripture at least, that God advised or told Abraham to do this. But he made the decision to go down to Egypt because of the famine. You remember what happened there. He was afraid because Sarah, his wife, was a beautiful woman, and, um, and he was afraid that they might kill him in order to, um, to have her, to get her. So he told her that she was supposed to... Um, to say that uh, she was his sister, which um, was a half-truth. I think she actually was a half-sister, or possibly cousin. We're not exactly sure of that. But in verse 13, he says, uh, Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. That wasn't very good. That was a breach of judgment on Abram's part. And what I find interesting is God, God saved him out of that predicament that he got himself in. We have it down in verse 17. The Lord plagued Pharaoh in his house you know, because of that. And um, finally, Pharaoh realized what had happened. He told him he sent him away. But then what, what is interesting is, you go to chapter 13 and verse 3, and he went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. Even in his failure, God entreated, God worked on his behalf and you could say helped to salvage Abraham out of that bad situation. But what did he do? He went back to Bethel. He went back to the place where his tent had been set up before when he had built that altar. And again, if you want to, this is part of that little Bible study I just talked about in relation to Bethel. There's multiple times in the scriptures where people went back to Bethel. And this is, I think, the first one. Abraham went back to Bethel, back to that place where he had left off probably in his path with God, where he should have probably asked God before he went down to Egypt and got himself into trouble down there, but now he returned. Brothers and sisters, this morning, when we fail, when we stray in our Christian life, we have to return to Bethel. We have to go back to that place where we left off, in our, in our following of God, in our following the path of God's will. Go back to where we left off. Go back to where we, we left that blessing and presence of God. Go back to that altar of worship and there find the presence of God with us again. Another 
thing that we notice here. Let's just go to chapter 18 and verse 1. Another little story in the life of Abraham. You think about Abraham as a friend of God. And the Lord appeared unto him in the plans of memory, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. When he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. This is when the angels and the third probably was Christ incarnate came to meet Abraham, they were on their way to the city of Sodom. And now what is interesting here is, and I, we don't want to make more of this than what the scripture makes of it, but I do find it interesting, and I think there's a type here, where we find Abraham sitting in the tent door during the, the heat of the day, or during the, the hottest part of the day. And he, he was there. In his tent door. Exactly what all that means in the cultural setting, I do not exactly know. But one thing I think that we can draw from this is that we as fathers, as Abraham, need to be the guardians of our tent door. And in the heat of the day, in the activities, the busyness of life, we have to be sure that we are the guardians of our tents. We are the guardians of our doors. And how many times has there been disappointment and failure Because as fathers, we were not there on duty the way we should have been. And I'm not saying literally sitting in, you know, in the doorway all day long. I'm not talking about that physically. I'm talking about spiritually. We have that responsibility. And to there, guarding the entrance of our homes, as it were, and and guarding the, the entrance to our families and the influences that can come. And, and that uh, we know in the world today do come and do provide a tremendous amount of pressure upon our families. And especially think about this as, as young families, and you think about you know, the influences into their innocent lives that will come to bear upon them, influences that can scar them for life if we're not careful. And so we need to be there, as, as it were, sitting in the tent door. It's part of our responsibility. Like faithful Abraham, being there when the strangers showed up, he went out to meet them. He wanted to know what was going on, and um, you know he he was hospitable. He took care of them, and uh, and because of that, God was able to reveal to him in that setting what he was about to do in the land of Sodom. Now we have another interesting one here, is also in verse nine in the same story, and uh, after they had eaten. Um, in verse 8 and he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them and and he stood by them under the tree and they did eat now verse 9 and they said unto him where is Sarah thy wife and he said behold in the tent thinking of Abraham as a leader in his home and a leader to his wife when they asked him, where is Sarah thy wife? He said, behold, in the tent. He knew where she was, of course, in this setting physically, of course. But I guess the challenge to me in this passage is, as husbands, as fathers, you know, Abraham was a leader. He was a friend of God in that leadership to his family. As husbands, do we really know 
where our wife is. I'm not talking about physically necessarily. Spiritually and emotionally. You know, we take a vow in marriage as a husband to love and to cherish. To love and to cherish. That's a responsibility that we take for the emotional and the spiritual, yes, physically, physical welfare of our companion. When they ask Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? She said she's in the tent. Would the Lord say to us this morning, as fathers, as husbands, where is your wife? Where is she at spiritually? Where is she at emotionally? Is she doing well? We pledged, we vowed to honor her needs, to look after her, to be that helpmeet for her, the same as she was a helpmeet for us. But we are taking that spiritual responsibility and leadership. I know how it is. We get busy. And we can just assume that everything is all right. And maybe we slowly lose touch. We don't quite know each other, even though we maybe lived together for many years already. We don't quite know where each other is emotionally and, and spiritually even because we just haven't taken the time. Abraham knew where she was. His father's husbands, let's take that responsibility seriously. Abraham knew. He was a friend of God. He was a leader in his family. Abraham, Abraham loved and cared for Sarah. I was just reading last evening there. You know, his, his mourning for her when she, died, when she died. He was probably, I forget how many years older Abraham was than Sarah, I forget that now. But he was a bit older than her, but she died first. And he mourned for her. You know, Abraham loved her. And Sarah loved Abraham. They had a mutual respect for each other. Yes, they had their things, you know, with Hagar and the fulfillment of God's, you know, promise to them. But I had to think of that verse there in 1 Peter 3, 6. It says, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Calling him Lord. And so I think they had a, they had a beautiful relationship. And uh, that's just, again, one of the things that we can draw from Scripture. They, as a couple, are used by the Apostle Peter, to talk about husband-wife relationships. Think about that. All right. Um, chapter 18 and verse 19. And here we have, um, I'd say, one of the famous statements of God made about Abraham. This is when and I talked about this, the men of Sodom, or the men were headed towards Sodom. And Abraham at this point did not know yet what, was, what this was all about. They were just travelers on the way, stopped, and he took care of them, asked a few questions, reaffirmed, you know, this, the, the promise of a son, which made them both laugh. But um, not an unbelief. The Bible doesn't say it was never an unbelief. But they laughed. They thought it was... Kind of funny that they would have a son in old age. She was, what, 90-some years old. Abraham was 100 when Isaac was born. And um, 
So they, yeah, they, they, they thought it was almost humorous. But again, not in unbelief, because the Bible says they never wavered in their belief that God would do it. But anyway, the men in verse 16, the men rose up from thence and looked towards Sodom, and, and, and Abraham went with them to bring them on their way. And then the Lord said in verse 17, Shall I hide from Abram the thing which I do, seeing that Abram shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? Now notice verse 19, For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abram that which he has spoken of him. And then God went on to explain to Abraham what was going to happen in the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. But verse 19, God could say of Abraham as a friend, I know him. I know Abraham. I know his heart. I know his burden for the future of God's people and future generations. And in that friendship, in that knowledge, Abraham had a one, you could say a one-on-one relationship, talking relationship with God. And God, because of that closeness of their relationships, said, you know, I, I, because of who Abraham is, and he's my friend, and what's going to become of him, and all that I promised him for the future generations, I need to tell him this. That's really what God was saying. I need to inform him of what's going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah in judgment so that he's not taken by surprise. And I find that interesting that God is saying, I trust this man for the future of the whole messianic prophecies in relation to the salvation through Jesus Christ coming to the world. I know him. He's going to do what I ask him to do. He's going to do what I expect him to do, what I want him to do. And so we find that here in this this part. God here chose a man who he knew he could trust to be the patriarchal family in bringing the Messiah to the world. Let's allow that to sink into our hearts when we think about the trust that God puts into us in raising men and women for him in the lives of our children. I'd like to think now for a little bit about a man of faith and trust. He was a leader in his home. We noticed that in his family. He was also a man of faith and trust. So Sodom and Gomorrah were destined to be destroyed God told Abraham, a little further down in the same chapter, what was going to happen. What did Abraham do? What could have he done? He could have said, well, you know, Lot's going to finally get what he deserved. All the trouble he's caused. It's too bad. God's righteous. God said, this is what's going to happen. feel bad for Lot and his family, but there's choices he made. Is that what Abraham did? No. 
Notice verse 23. Verse 22, the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. A little stunned, maybe? What he just found out was going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah? A little, little stunned, a little surprised, like trying to, you know, calculate all of this in his mind? Now notice verse 23. And Abraham drew near and said. He drew near to God. He stood up straight, whatever that all means, I don't know. Maybe looked to the heavens. And he said, Wilt thou destroy the righteous with the wicked? A man of faith, a man of trust, a man who was a friend of God, a man that knew God, knew the heart of God, knew the character of God. Wilt thou destroy the righteous with the wicked? Prevents that there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? Now notice verse 25, that be far from thee to do the, after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? I'm not sure what all this means. There are a few things that I think about in, in relation to this. You know, that Abraham was... I mean, God said that Abraham was his friend. Abraham is a friend of God. And what do friends do for each other? They, they seek to protect each other and help each other understand the situation, maybe. And it's not that Abraham was pretending to know more than God, but really what Abraham was saying is, are you going to really destroy it, the righteous with the wicked in this place? He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? I know you're going to make a right decision, but please think, please think about this. What if there's righteous people there? And what about your high and holy name and, and your justice and your righteousness? You, know, you wouldn't do that, would you? We'll never know what God would have done without the prayer of Abraham. I, we'll never know. Because God at times does destroy the, the righteous with the wicked. There can be a tornado, there can be a tsunami, there can be, you know, a hurricane, there can be all kinds of things, accidents and storms and fatalities, and at times the righteous die with the wicked in some of those situations. So it's not that it was not, um, it was totally different from God's character. God sometimes does allow that. We know that today. But I think behind this was, and there's a cultural thing that probably goes into this, in beseeching someone that was higher than a, from a lower position. But, but he is really beseeching God for Lot. That's really what he's doing. And, and he starts off saying, well, at least if there's 50, you won't destroy the city for 50 righteous, will you? You know, you're a long-suffering God, you're merciful. You know, if there's 50 righteous... God said, no, for 50, I won't do it. And then it seems like Abraham's like, well, maybe that's too high. Like, well, what if there's less than that? And he comes down, and he comes down in his request until he gets down to 10. 
As fathers, do we have power with God in moving the heart of God? Do we have this kind of, of, of power in prayer and beseeching the throne of God for those few righteous at times that are threatened, whether it's our own children, our own families, our friends, relatives, whoever it is. Do we have the kind of power with God as a friend of God that we can move the heart of God? The sad thing is there was not even 10 righteous in that city. God said, I won't destroy it for 10. And Abram thought, okay, I got it covered. I'll stop praying now. I won't ask any more. I think it's okay. And you've heard me say this before in other messages. But I've often wondered what was going through Abraham's mind the next morning when he went out and stood there and looked out over the plains. And the smoke was going up like the smoke of a furnace. Where was his faith and trust in God then? The Bible doesn't tell us anything about that except that he stood there and looked. There wasn't ten righteous in that city. But the Bible also tells us that when God overthrew the cities of the plains, he remembered Abraham and took Lot out in the midst of the overthrow. God still honored the word of Abraham. It was a test of his faith to stand there and watch that smoke go up and wonder whatever happened to Lot. But he was, God removed him by force. The angels actually had to take hold of his arms and of his hands and his two daughters and drag him out of the city practically. But he got him out. It says, the Lord remembered Abraham and delivered Lot. Brother, or brothers and sisters, maybe you'd say fathers, we need in today's world, in delivering our families from the snares of Sodom, we're going to need that kind of power with God in prayer. To know what it means to beseech the throne of God. He did it in a very humble way. He said, you know, I've taken on myself to, to, to ask this. He said, I'm just dust and ashes. You know, you know I, I've taken on me to, to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes there in verse 27. He did it in a very humble way. But he had power with God. It's a challenge for us. He was a man of faith and trust. Let's go to chapter 22 now. Maybe the harder test for Abraham. The hardest test, maybe. Verse 20, chapter 22, verse 2. God was talking to Abraham. He said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and there, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I shall tell thee of. So, we understand this story. What I find interesting is Abraham's obedience 
to the will of God, even when it made absolutely no sense. No sense whatsoever. Has God ever asked you to do something that makes no sense? Do we have to reason everything out before we obey? If we're a man of faith and trust, there's going to be a lot of times in life that we step out in faith and trust without knowing what the reasons are. But look in verse 3. What did Abraham do when God told him to take Isaac, his only son, whom thou lovest, and go offer him for a burnt offering on some foreign mountain three days travel away? Verse 3, And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and he set out to go. I admire that. Isn't it a reflection of his closest to his God? He was human. He would have struggled with this. And he did. The Bible other places tells us he struggled with it. But he never lost his faith. You know, and there as they had that conversation going up the mountain there, you know, and, and Isaac asked him, you know, you know, there's we got the wood, we got the fire, but where's the sacrifice? Abraham said, My son God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. I love that picture. Both of them together. I believe at this point, Isaac knew what was going to happen. Maybe even before this, but I think at this point for sure. Abraham understood, or Isaac understood. And they came to the place which God had told him of, Mount Moriah, which a thousand years later, Solomon would build his temple there, temple for God. That's interesting, fascinating. You go through the whole in Bible study, the significance of Mount Moriah. It's here. Abraham built an altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. How was Abraham able to do this? Because he was a friend of God. Hebrews tells us, there in Hebrews 11, verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tried or tested, offered up Isaac. And he that received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. God had made those promises. He gave him the son and he said, you know, through Isaac is going to be the, the lineage to the Messiah to bless all nations. And now he's supposed to offer him. He took the knife to slay his son. He says, that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, verse 19, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. I suspect that part of the conversation between Abraham and Isaac was, I guess God's going to raise you from the dead after this is all over. That's what Hebrews tells us. That's because that's the only thing that Abraham could figure out was going to happen because he believed God. This is a promise. Now I'm supposed to do this, which is a direct contradiction to what you just promised me. But God said, do it. You have to understand that this, the thing of offering a son in the heathen culture was not unusual. So this is not like totally unheard of, but it was part of the pagan culture. So that would have been all in Abram's mind as well. So 
remember the angel stopped him and said, don't, don't touch him. Think with me a little bit about the relationship that must have existed between Abraham and Isaac as a father and a son. There's things here that are mysterious and we don't understand it, but I will say this. There obviously was a very close relationship between a father and a son. We may think of Isaac as a lad here, a young boy. A lot of Bible scholars think he was at least 17. I did a little more research on it. And the Jewish rabbis, the Jewish tradition is, um, generally it was agreed that he was 37 years of age when this took place. Some rabbis think he was 27. If you look through the whole chronology of lifespans, chronology of time, it would point probably to be older rather than younger. What does it tell you about their relationship? And how could we have, as a father, that kind of relationship with a son? Isaac obviously had a strong trust and faith in his father. And with that, also a strong faith and trust in his father's God. Yes, it's a different setting. We understand all of that. God never asked us to do that in this case. But spiritually, there is that responsibility. When you think about this, where a father and a son, they went both of them together with that understanding that they were going to follow the path and the will of God to the letter. You know, as, as fathers, how can we build that strong relationship with our children? That they catch that vision of our faith and trust in God. Well, first of all, we have to be a friend of God like Abraham was. We need to show that faith and trust and live it out before them. This wasn't the first time that Isaac seen faith and trust in his father. And probably admired his spirituality and his deep trust in God. He would have heard all the stories of God's working in the past. We talked about that. He would overlap almost 50 years with Shem, Noah's son. So there was, there was the stories of God's working in the past. But Abraham himself had developed that strong relationship with his son. As fathers, we, you think about young children being born into the home. As fathers, we begin with an enormous amount of advantage It is like capital in the bank, credit in the bank, with a young child. I enjoy watching this as a grandfather, grandchildren. And I see it in our church family here as well. Dale was behind the bleachers last night pitching the ball for his little son, teaching him how to swing the bat. I love seeing that. We begin with an enormous amount of advantage. They look up to us. They admire us. These little fellows want to copy their dad. They're glad, they want to be with their dad. They want to do what daddy does. They just, there's that enormous advantage that are given to us as a father in these young lives. 
what happens between that time, that age, and teenage years and early adult years. What happens in that time is largely what you and I as fathers do with the advantage, all that capital in the bank, as it were, in the life of that child. Whether we let it run through our fingers, whether we seize it and build on it for that relationship, yes, we need to be firm, we need to teach right and wrong, and all those things, but we need to be their friend. We need to be their friend. We need to be there for them. Talk about the intimate things of life and talk about, you know, God and talk about, you know, life and decision-making and all those things, you know, answer their questions. They're, they're there to learn from us. And I know they can answer, I mean, they can ask a thousand questions, but it's our opportunity. Because there'll be a day when they don't ask very many questions anymore. And that opportunity is largely gone. Take advantage of that. Abraham obviously started young. There was a whole relationship, a whole lifetime, as it were, with Isaac so far to the point that Abraham bound his hands and laid him on the altar. That didn't happen without a lot of effort. And Abraham not even realizing at those early years what was going to happen. But it was there. It was in place. God said, I know him. He's going to command his children and his household after him. Just one more. Genesis 24 and verse 6. Isaac now was 40 years old. I think close to 40, 40 years old. And Genesis 24 and verse 6. This is when Abraham was charging Eliezer, his steward, his servant, to go find a wife for Isaac. And we have then in the beginning of the chapter, Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had, and he made him swear, and he goes down through to um, uh, verse, um, well, verse 4. But thou shalt go into my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. In other words, go back to our relatives, go back to the people that we know, part of the family, and find a wife for my son. And the servant said unto him, Peradventure the woman will not be willing to follow me into this land, I mean, to go from where they were in, in Haran, where there was quite civilized cities there. I mean, archaeology tells us that there was in the land of the, of the, the, the city of, of the Chaldeans there. I mean, archaeologists have found flushing toilets. And I mean, it was a fairly civilized, as we even understand it as today. Abram was living the life of a nomad, living in tents. Because he was searching for that city that had foundations, Hebrews 11 tells us. So the servant asked a very logical question. Suppose she's not willing to come and live here like we live. Must I needs bring thy son again unto the land from whence thou camest? So, okay, I find the wife for Isaac. She's not willing to come live here. 
Should I take Isaac to live there? What did Abraham say in verse 6? And Abraham said unto him, Beware that thou bring not my son thither again. What did Abraham mean by that? Don't, in any case, make any deal in finding a wife for my son that would take my son back to the land of idolatry that we came from. Whatever the case, this is the charge. Beware that thou bring not my son thither again. This was back to some of the idol-worshipping relatives. He had a deep concern for the future of his family and did not want Isaac exposed to that lifestyle. We talked about before, Abraham in the tent door, guarding the influences, and here he was saying, we're not going to jeopardize the plan of God for the future salvation of the world through the promise of the Messiah. We're, don't take my son back there. I'm more concerned for his spiritual welfare than for his whatever pleasure, whatever comfort, whatever fulfillment it may mean. And so this morning, as fathers, we have that responsibility. We are responsible to guard the influences and the pressures that will come upon our families, even as a young adult, as it were. And so very simply this morning, I'd like to summarize this in closing. What was the key to Abraham's life as a friend of God? What made him the man that he was, that we look up to and we look back to? A perfect father? No. A perfect friend of God? No. But perfect in his sincerity to follow God. Even at times when he had to go back to Bethel and start over again, because that, the path he had chosen was wrong. He didn't ask God for that and had to go find his way again. In summary, very simple, it's for us today as well. Love for God, faith in God equals obedience to God. Love for God, faith in God equals obedience to God. Whenever you and I struggle with our obedience to the revealed will of God, it always means that we do not love him as we should. Abram was a friend of God. He loved God. He, he, he loved him. And God loved him. And through that love and that faith in God, which comes out of that love, then results in obedience to God. Don't try to obey something and think that you can somehow squeeze your way through some sort of Christianity today that doesn't have that profound, deep love for God and faith in God to do what the impossible. Because in our minds, we can set up these roadblocks, we can set up these barricades and say, I'll be a Christian, but I'm going to stop here. I don't want to go this far. I want to do this, but I'm willing to do that, but not, not quite go that far. If we do that, we don't love God. Yeah, it takes that commitment where you pack up and you go when you don't even know where you're going because you're in the will of God. So this morning, to us as fathers, what will be the legacy of our lives? What will be the legacy of your life, my life? Are you and I a friend of God? 
would God say, he's my friend? Do we have that kind of relationship? Will we be remembered as a friend of God because of our deep trust and faith and our closeness with God? Any distance in our relationship with God is not God's fault. It's our fault. God said, you draw an eye to me, I'll draw an eye to you. It's not really difficult, but it does take a surrender of our wills and a deep commitment to follow God each step of the way. May God bless each of us this morning, especially as fathers, and the large responsibility God has given to us. Let's be the shepherds of our homes. Let's be the leadership that God wants us to, to, to be to our families, that God can bless us. May God bless each of you with the grace and the help of God. Let's kneel to pray. Thank you, Father, that we can be your friend, and that you are our friend. Thank you for the life of faithful Abraham, who was known in the scriptures as your friend. And the encouragement he gives to us in our lives, we thank you that we can serve you as the same God that Abraham served in his day, his generation. And you saw these years, you saw these lives, you saw us today, now in 2023. And you will provide the same strength and power for us to continue faithful. Bless each father here this morning. Each young man who is a would-to-be father at some future time, possibly, according to your will. Bless us with that vision. Bless us with that understanding. We pray for those children, those young men, young women who have turned aside and chose not to follow the, the faith of their father. We pray for them. You would call them back to understand their responsibility to the knowledge that has been given and taught. And Father, we just pray that you would help us in these last days when the forces of darkness are closing in around us, when the light of your people will be shining brighter and brighter, in these closing chapters of history, we might be faithful and we thank you that you have empowered us and you will continue to empower us regardless what the unknown future holds for us. But we just step out in courage, we step out in faith because you are there and you will make a way for us in your faithfulness and your goodness to us. And so, Father, we trust in you. We have faith in you. May that grow. May we experience all that you have for us today. And Father, we look forward to the time in the future when, as the scriptures tell us, we will sit down in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in your kingdom and be able to visit with them and to enjoy the blessings of an eternity with your people, one family together. We ask the name of Christ. Amen.